Welcome to Live at America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. Last night, the National Constitution Center hosted a timely two-part discussion of impeachment, exploring the past, present, and future of presidential impeachment. The first panel dives into the process of impeachment, explaining the procedural steps the Constitution requires and how they've played out in the current impeachment inquiry. That panel features Michael Gerhardt, NCC scholar-in-residence and CNN impeachment expert, John Malcolm, Vice President of the Institution for Constitutional Government at Heritage, Kim Whaley, Professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law and CBS Legal Analyst, and Keith Whittington, Professor of Politics at Princeton. Here's Jeff. Michael, we must start with you. You cannot and will not talk about your testimony on Wednesday, but you have been guiding the nation through the impeachment process, and we all want to know what broadly to expect on Wednesday and in the weeks ahead. You've, You've written so much, including that attacks on the process so far have been flawed. I'll just begin by asking you, what's the most important thing about impeachment that you think the audience needs to know right now? I, uh, it's a great question. Um, th- I'll give you the answer. Um, it's, not, it's like nothing else. Um, it's not like a trial. It's not like a civil proceeding. It's not like a criminal proceeding. It's a special, unique constitutional process. And that gets lost almost every time somebody who doesn't know anything about impeachment starts talking about it. Because they're going to analyze or analogize it to something they think they know, which is, oh, it's got to be like a civil trial or it's got to be like a criminal trial. But it's not. The whole idea was to make it unique. Uh, and it's unique in a number of different ways. Uh, it differs from civil proceedings in that um, nobody's going to be uh, uh, liable for damages or enjoined from doing anything else. Uh, the only sanctions available in impeachment at the end of the process are removal and disqualification. To say somebody's impeached means they've been charged with misconduct. But like everything else uh, that's said about the House and the Constitution, the House does not have the power to complete any constitutional act. And impeachment is a good example. It can start it, but it can't finish it. It can impeach somebody, but then the Senate has to complete it. Um, It's also not like a criminal trial for obvious reasons. Uh, A person's life and liberty are not at stake uh, in an impeachment trial. Again, it's about removal or disqualification. And then there are questions about uh, the people that make decisions about impeachment. They're different than the people that make decisions in trials. Um, Members of Congress were given this special authority because the framers wanted to ensure that the decision makers could be accountable in some way for what they did. In this particular circumstance, politically accountable. Uh, So that's part of the checks and balances. That's part of the beauty of that system, that even though uh, members of Congress can make these critical judgments, it's not as if they can just walk away without facing some kind of accountability. They have to make the hard choices here, and then they have to be held accountable, just as they may be trying to hold somebody accountable in this particular process. Um, also different from other processes, um, there are no rules of evidence. You couldn't enforce rules of evidence even if you wanted to. But the most important thing to understand about that is framers gave this responsibility to people the framers thought were more sophisticated than your typical jurors. And therefore, they wouldn't need the kinds of protections that rules of evidence would provide. And the same could be tread for burdens of proof. Um, my intent tonight was to actually hide in plain sight 
and so I'm gonna pass the ball. To, huh. Well, there's nowhere to hide from the constitutional light that is being spread from this stage, which you've contributed to by reminding us that the, con the impeachment process is a mix of legal and political judgments. And it's a very interesting point that not only the president, but also the representatives and senators themselves will be held politically accountable to the voters. Keith Whittington, you wrote a very interesting and uh, characteristically interesting and subtle piece arguing that there's no duty to impeach. It may be advisable or not, but that one of the judgments that the House can make in deciding whether or not to impeach is whether it's the most effective remedy against a president they feel is thwarting the law or whether other remedies ranging from re-election to legal constraints on the president might be more advisable. Tell us more about that argument and whether or not you think under the circumstances that it is or is not advisable to impeach. I think one of the unique features of an impeachment um, inquiry, both at the House level and then eventually with the Senate trial, is precisely that you're bringing this before a political body that has to make a political decision. It's partially they're politically accountable, so they're thinking about their voters, but partially they're also trying to think about the nature of the offenses that are being charged and what the available remedies are um, to those offenses. The impeachment power is included in the Constitution um, in part because there was a perceived need to have a particular political remedy in case things went horribly wrong uh, with somebody who had a, a lengthy tenure of office and a great deal of power um, at their uh, disposal. And that entrusted then the House um, to investigate uh, potential charges um, against those kinds of officers, whether they're judges or even uh, presidents um, of the United States. But then also to make an assessment about how serious are those charges, what's the right remedy to address those charges. Maybe that remedy means uh, waiting until the next election in the case of a president and you can allow the voters to make a determination. It may mean that there are other mechanisms you can uh, use to try to deal with um, the particular kind of misconduct um, uh, that's at stake. So uh, maybe there's congressional oversight that can do the job. Maybe you can leverage um, uh, the president's own policy preferences um, in order to um, encourage the White House to behave better um, in the future and the like. Um, but then in extreme circumstances, maybe the only remedy available is one of actually trying to uh, remove a sitting officer um, who simply can't be trusted to continue to exercise that power um, into the future. And clearly part of what the House has to think about now um, is whether they've reached that point, uh, whether there's no, no other options left um, including the option of potentially waiting for the election. The, the best thing to do now um, is to move forward to bring it to the Senate trial and ask for the president's removal. Uh, Kim Willey, you have argued that based on the facts that we know on the open record, even before some of uh, the testimony in the past weeks, that there was a clear case of abuse of power and I think of, of, of bribery and abuse of public office, and you, you characterize the, essentially there being no, no defense, really. Do you still feel that way? And what defense do you imagine will be made this week? Well, I, first I want to thank you for including me. This is really an honor to be here. And I, so I congratulate everyone for being part of this discussion. I'm a, a big believer in the Constitution. And constitutional literacy is something that we all should be spreading. Because in this moment, it's not just this president that's at stake here, or his personal fate, but the fate of democracy and having an accountable government going forward. It, it's, it's regardless of what happens to him. Um, thank you. Uh, so, so I'm not sure, I, I write a lot for a number of publications. I'm not sure wh which piece that was, but I think the argument that, what, that as a lawyer uh, that I laid out was 
what is the response on the narrative, on the factual narrative? And I know my colleague will have one. Uh, we, we talked in the green room before here. Um, but essentially, the, the facts as they have been out even prior to the public impeachment hearings were set forth in the July 25th memorandum, where the president asked a favor of a, of a foreign government to investigate a political rival domestically. And then we saw last week, in the last couple of weeks, a um, impeachment witnesses laying out from a professional longstanding um, expertise point of view. These are public servants. They're neighbors and friends like you and me. These are not people with any particular agenda other than really upholding the rule of law, the Constitution, um, and doing what's right for the American public. They basically consistently said there was no clear basis for withholding the $400 million of aid. We were all very concerned. This is all was... Um, really bad for Ukraine, Ukraine, the word Ukraine, apparently, I'm a Ukrainian, I should know this, but my grandmother came from Ukraine. Um, but uh, but it, it apparently means, I can't verify, it apparently means borderland. It means frontier. So it's between, it's situated between the Western democracies in Europe and, and Russia, um, and the Russians have been, we saw with Crimea, the invasion of Crimea, part of Ukraine by Putin. Since 1991, they've been struggling really hard to, to become democratic. And that's in the interest of the United States to spread democracy across the globe. That's been consistently what our position is. Um, and so what I was saying as far as defenses, there are a number of defenses. One is it didn't happen that way, and we haven't really heard that. Um, we don't have evidence that the president directly asked um, for said, listen, if you don't give me a, a, announce an investigation into Joe Biden, I will not give you the $400 million in aid. Um, but we, he did say Rudy Giuliani's in charge of this, and I think uh, anyone suggesting that Rudy Giuliani is acting with, without directives from the president, you know, doesn't that doesn't hold any water. Um, and so what we heard from the, in the, the witnesses was that this was really bad for Ukraine, which made it really bad for America. Um, and it was really good potentially for, for the president politically um, and good for Vladimir Putin, who's been sort of uh, circulating this, this myth about Ukrainian interference in the election for about a year now. And we heard tonight through Politico, Natasha Bertrand reported that the Senate Intel Committee, the Republicans, uh, it's been leaked, but basically said there is no, that their investigation starting in 2017 into Ukrainian influence pretty much fell flat. So. So if the question is abuse of power, it comes down to, is the president using the power of his office to, on behalf of the American populace as a fiduciary, we the people, it's self-government, that person's not there to do what's best for him and to entrench power. Um, and the narrative is, is pretty, it's, it's laid out as that's one viable, I think, story. Um, and it's human nature, as the framers knew, to entrench and ultimately to abuse power. Uh, that's just how people are wired. As far as defenses, uh, you know, it's very carefully lawyered. We heard procedural defenses. That's um, for a number of reasons that many of us can talk about. That's not meaningful. The, under the Constitution, the House gets to set their own rules. And of course, the Republicans have participated in this from, from the beginning. Um, and then there's sort of the whistleblower is is really to blame that defense has fallen short because that he or she handed the baton off. It's kind of like calling a, you know, a hotline and you have information on a crime. Once you pass it along, no one cares what, have, what you thought. You want, they want to talk to the original witnesses. Um, and then there's a story that, you know, that the president had a legitimate reason to ask a, 
foreign government to investigate criminally a political opponent rather than start internally with our own spectacular, stellar national security and criminal uh, justice apparatus. Uh, and of course, this is of a piece with the Mueller report. I just want to make one point on the Mueller report before I turn it off, turn it over. Um, in the book, my book is very sort of user friendly for regular people, and it uses common sense. The idea being, you know, if there's a speed camera hiding on a in a thoroughfare, people will slow down once they know the speed camera's there and they'll speed up after that. It's human nature. The question is where are the checks, where are the speed cameras and the tickets being issued to the office of the presidency, regardless of the person? Because of the OLC memo saying internally you cannot indict a sitting president, the judicial branch through the criminal justice system is out for purposes of actually holding a sitting president accountable. So my position has generally been the lever of impeachment has to be pulled in this moment to retain an accountable government, regardless of what happens to this particular man. Many thanks for that comprehensive uh, account of the case for and against. John, I promise this wasn't, this is not a crossfire debate, but I would love you to give uh, your account of the best defense of the president. Kim ended with the claim that maybe he had a legitimate reason for asking for the investigation of Ukraine, uh, would that uh, mitigate the charge of uh, corrupt service of his own private rather than the public interest and, and make the best case that, that, that you can? Sure. Well, I, I too am delighted to, to be here. And if, if crossfire it is, so be it. Um, you know, I, let me first of all begin by saying that, that impeachment is an extraordinary event. I mean, it's only, only 19 people and only two presidents in our nation's history have been uh, impeached. Um, and one of the things when, when the standards were being discussed for impeachment at, in, you know, right, right down the street uh, at the at con Constitutional Convention, uh, George Mason uh, had proposed adding maladministration as one of the impeachment standards. It was, it was a provision in many state constitutions or colony constitutions uh, at the time, and that was specifically rejected. We don't have a parliamentary system where if you don't like somebody or you don't like their policies, you can immediately call for a no confidence vote uh, and then throw the rascal out. Uh, for that, we have elections. Uh, so you need to, so it is an extraordinary uh, remedy. I would agree, I think, with my colleagues that it doesn't have to rise to the level of outright criminality, a gross abuse of office. Uh, could count as this. You know, look, I, I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as, as possible. So I'm not going to, to denigrate any of the, you know, uh, career officials who operate uh, in the State Department. And they may well be right uh, that the Ukrainians have truly turned over a new leaf uh, with the uh, election of President uh, Zelensky, uh, the president, after all, at the end of the day, not only released the $391 million, he went beyond that. He sold them $39 million in Javelin anti-tank uh, missiles. Uh, he received a lot of lobbying, not only from those career people, but immediately before those funds were released. Uh, he received a visit from Vice President Pence, who had met with President Zelensky in Warsaw. He received a bipartisan group of senators who came in and said that they had just met uh, a few days beforehand in Ukraine with Zelensky. They were very impressed with him, believed that he was sincere in his commitment to fighting corruption and that the Congress supported him and the funds were, uh, were released. Uh, so all of these officials may have thought that the president was wrong uh, for withholding 
uh, aid. However, the president had made it very clear, one, that he and said this in the July 25th uh, call to President Zelensky, uh, that he believes that we provide too much foreign aid to other countries when the Europeans should step up to the plate. Uh, and also, he had clearly a more jaundiced view than a lot of these career officials uh, about Ukraine's commitment to, to fighting corruption, including, by the way, uh, investigating uh, Burisma, uh, and quite possibly inve investigating uh, Joe Biden, not because he was going to be a political rival, because he was the vice president in the Obama administration who dealt with Ukraine at the time. And he also had a more jaundiced view about whether the Ukrainians had attempted to interfere with the election. Now, you know, he may have some theory that is unsupported about perhaps the Ukrainians were involved in the DNC hack, but totally setting that aside, it was no secret that there were high-ranking Ukrainian officials who were trying to help Hillary Clinton. Uh, a Ukrainian court last year found that a Ukrainian elected official and the head of the Anti-Corruption Bureau had illegally leaked the so-called black ledgers, those were the payments to Paul Manafort, to the United States for the specific purpose of helping Hillary Clinton. And in Politico, uh, right after the president was elected and before he took the oath of office, wrote an article saying Ukrainian efforts to sabotage Trump backfire. Kiev officials are scrambling to make amends with the president-elect after quiet working to boost Clinton. So, you know, the president gets to set foreign policy. He had a more jaundiced view uh, of the Ukrainians, and he had a good faith basis for doing what it is that he did. Now, you may decide you don't like his policies, you don't like his manner, there are many, many things that you don't like about him. Fine, then vote him out of office in November 2020, but impeachment is a bridge too far. Thank you for that succinct account of a uh, factual narrative that would hold that it was not bribery, but a legitimate effort to investigate foreign corruption that might have motivated the president. All right, in this round, you know, this is an important audience and this is an important event. And I'm, I'm just gonna ask you, Michael, if I may, to take off all the constraints that we impose on you at the National Constitution Center to be nonpartisan. And if you were, if you were a House member, <laughs> you're, not, you're, now, you're, you're now Representative Gerhardt and make the speech to your colleagues, the fellow members of the assembly, about whether you think on the law, this what the president is accused of rises to the level of what the framers thought was uh, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors, and on the facts, whether the case is proven, and therefore whether or not he should be impeached. Uh, it'll be, I'll be very unsuccessful representative because I'm gonna try and uh, clarify a couple points ahead of time, which is exactly, you know, so. It will not be Daniel You can Webster. answer another question if yeah. you like. But. You, it, it will not, no, uh, that will be helpful to my advocacy. No, I'm not Daniel Webster. Um, so uh, we haven't really talked about what's an impeachable offense, and it may be helpful to do that in framing what I'm about to say. Um, so of course the language that's really at issue here is what do other crimes and misdemeanors? Most people don't use those terms in their everyday existence. We do in my house, but we're different. <laughs> um, you, know, my, you also have a, a, a son who plays the violin extraordinarily well. well. I, I appreciate that. So that's a, that's a low crime, not a high, no. Uh, uh, and so, um, but the, the question always is asked, what does that mean? And I, I think the bottom line is, if we look at the history and where that language came from, it was language the framers deliberately took from the British and the British had used those terms, and the colonists obviously were familiar with them, to refer to what were understood at that time as political crimes. These are not the kinds of offenses, typically, for which you could go to jail. 
But these are the kinds of offenses that could be committed by people who have unique powers of office. So a president can do things nobody else can do. He can therefore um, go too far in ways that only he, that would only be limited by the Constitution. And when that happens, impeachment is one of the most important, if not the single most important, remedy. Um, so what, what do political crimes mean then? They are abuses of power, breaches of public trust, um, and um, uh, it's oftentimes sometimes phrased as things are just so plainly wrong or bad that injure the republic that you know it when you see it. Um, that's, that's condensing a lot of stuff, but that's the background. So the question just becomes with President Trump, um, what, whether or not he's, ex, uh, he's exceeded that, whether he's violated the constitutional standard, has he abused his power, for example, or has he committed bribery? Um, I think there's a powerful case to be made that he's done both of those things. Um, one reason why you might think of it as an abuse of power is because no other president in American history has ever done this. No other president in American history has ever asked for a personal favor in exchange for doing his job. That's what the transcript says. I'm, and guess what? I am not making this up. That is what it says. And by the way, that was not a one-off. There was a systematic effort to bring that outcome about. And it included the removal of a meritorious officer. By the way, one of the examples in the Constitutional Convention was that the president removes meritorious officers. Um, and so if we could find language all over the convention that fits this to a T, I would say. Um, but in terms of this particular kinds of misconduct, I think where we're at, and I'm almost wrapped up, is, is um, it's very analogous in my view to, to, to pick up on the, the traffic analogy. It's always helpful. I got two boys that drive. I'm thinking about that all the time. Um, and so uh, if we, I don't have to see um, the person that's just been charged with driving 75 miles an hour in a school zone to know that person broke the law. I don't have to see it. It's obvious. It's not even close. That's what this is. This is not even close. To use another analogy, this is as if the person robbing a bank was caught right before they walked out with the money. The reason why the money gets released is because that same day, that morning, the president found, was notified of the whistleblower complaint. That's when he decided to release the, the, the money. So when we look at the context, I would argue it's impossible to infer good faith. Just the opposite. It's easy, I think, to infer bad faith, and there's a bad act here. Those are exactly the things you need for impeachable offense. Keith, I think it's, I think it's the same question to you and all of your colleagues for this last round before the, the real representatives uh, come on stage. But you know, in the course of answering, you can argue, uh, as you uh, are moved to do, about whether or not it meets the standard for impeachment and then whether prudential considerations might counsel against impeaching and, and so forth. What, what will you say to the assembly? Yeah, so I think one of the questions that the House is going to have to contemplate and ultimately the Senate's going to have to contemplate is this question of how to distinguish um, what President Trump has done from this possibility of policy disagreements um, or maladministration, to borrow George Mason's language from the Constitutional Convention. We don't want to use the impeachment power as a tool um, by which partisan Congresses um, can beat up presidents um, for things just because the Congress thinks they should have done things differently. Um, they should have pursued different policy. You should have used 
use different personnel um, and the like. All presidents, all Congresses are going to have those kinds of disagreements. And the constitutional standard of high crimes and misdemeanors wasn't designed to capture that. Um, moreover, the high bar in the Senate as to what it takes to convict a president um, or any other official uh, for high crimes and misdemeanors is quite high. And so ultimately you have to get some level of bipartisanship um, in order to actually convict and remove um, somebody from, from misbehavior. And simply fo focusing on policy disagreements isn't going to get you there. You need to be able to demonstrate that there's actually an abuse of office um, that looks different um, than simply um, uh, what uh, policy differences uh, would look like. One of the complications, I think, with President Trump from this perspective is he's so unconventional in how he conducts his office generally. He doesn't have a lot of experience in the office. He doesn't bring people um, to him who have a lot of experience in these roles. And as a consequence, he does all kinds of things in a very unconventional way. Everything surrounding the Ukraine um, episode is also very unconventional. And so one question on the table is not only does President Trump have a different view about how to think about the Ukrainian situation than uh, members of Congress might, or members of the State Department, or even members of his own National Security Council might um, as well, but what should we infer from the way in which he was conducting that policy? What should we infer about his motives? And one natural inference is going to be uh, to conclude that President Trump is in fact uh, motivated by um, bad motives, that he's not pursuing the national interest, he's pursuing his own uh, personal interest, and we can see that through um, the relatively uh, strange behavior about how he's conducted this policy. Um, but you might think that some of that's just a function of the fact that the administration's dysfunctional um, and um, inexperienced uh, about how they engage things. And so one thing I think the House is going to have to um, try to establish um, is that what we are looking at should be counted as abuse, it shouldn't simply be counted as policy differences, um, and the president can't be excused um, simply because he's behaving in inexperienced and unconventional ways, um, but instead what we're seeing is a pattern that's better explained um, as something that uh, suggests a corrupt motive um, and a desire to abuse power uh, rather than something that simply reflects he doesn't know how to do this in a, in a more competent way. Kim, as you make your uh, cl closing arguments for this uh, part of the segment, I'm interested in your thoughts on Keith's challenge. How would you persuade your colleagues that this does meet the standard of a corrupt motive rather than the more charitable interpretation that John suggested, which is possibly a legitimate foreign policy motive? And do you, would you include in your uh, remarks uh, thoughts about what the consequences of a failed impeachment might be and if the, if the Senate rejects the charges, as it's widely expected to do, and why you think it's still important to carry forward uh, despite the fact that this would be the third failed uh, uh, presidential impeachment in, in history. Yes, so on the question of intent, um, and I mentioned the Mueller report, and that was kind of it just sort of fizzled in part because there, uh, we're in a new world when it comes to the media, uh, which I participate in, obviously. I worked on the Whitewater investigation for Ken Starr. And back then, there were major news networks that had a consistent narrative. The facts came through. There was standards of journalism, um, television and print media. So the public got a single set of facts. And then it's what do you do about the facts? Now we have facts and we have lies and alternative narratives, some of which are being imprinted by Vladimir Putin. I think it's important to keep in mind this human being who is this president. Um, with respect to the Mueller report, it was clear that he willingly, his campaign willingly accepted interference in the 2020 or 2016 election. He told George Stephanopoulos for ABC he'd happily accept interference in the election. It's illegal 
um, under the campaign finance laws to do that. So the notion that somehow that was not part all of a sudden uh, of this exchange just doesn't doesn't pass the logic test in my mind. And you know, at the end of the day, voting. If, if people say, oh, I get cynical about voting. But if, if voting didn't matter, then there wouldn't be all this effort to interfere with voting. Um, voting is the heart and soul of democracy. I mean, that, it, it's a real privilege that we have that in this country and other parts of the world, it does not exist. And I think most Americans don't really feel that in their bones, that how important and serious this infraction was, which was not the case in the last two impeachments with respect to um, Bill Clinton and Nixon, we didn't have foreign interference in the election. The, the thing, as far as persuading people, I'll give a couple thoughts. One is um, this notion of, you know, we've all had jobs and there's a job description. If someone doesn't show up, if someone's stealing from the, from the cash register, and that's not, you don't hold that person accountable for that, eventually the restaurant will fail or the shop will, will close. And we have to think about this not as this man, but as the office of the presidency, enlarging the belt and suspenders of the office so that instead of three co-equal branches, we have one mega branch and kind of a junior branch and a baby branch that would be the Congress. Uh, that's why I think that even if it's not a successful impeachment, having the Congress stand up for its prerogative as a co-equal branch that's required on behalf of the people to conduct oversight is as important as the ultimate outcome here. Um, the other thing is with respect to intent, I, can, I have a hard time getting around the consistent information that this was really dangerous for national security. And you know, I agree that the president has wide uh, discretion in that field, but not unlimited discretion. Otherwise, there wouldn't be an impeachment clause that's political. Um, and the other thing that came through is the sort of just uh, rejection of expertise, the dismantling of the administrative state, and people that spend their careers you know, devoted to this level of expertise. All of that went by the wayside. Think about it again as a job description. Who do you want in that office? The people that are going to actually do what's best for the entity of America or just do what he or she feels like is best for them or for whatever other reason. That's the basis uh, for impeachment. And the last piece has to do again with the separation of powers. This withholding of funds was another place where the Trump uh, went around the appropriations clause. One way that Congress keeps control of the presidency um, is through the purse, the power of the purse. This money was appropriated months before, almost a year before. It was authorized that May. The Ukrainians had gone through the bells and whistles. The corruption question had been answered. And the, the president did not follow the law in, in withholding the aid. Ultimately, he did turn it over, but the, the steps that were supposed to be filed in the interim were not. And we saw this also with the declaration of a national emergency. One last point, just metaphor, is I also have two kids that drive, so um, I'm going to switch metaphors off of driving and go to Sharpie pens, which we've heard a lot from this president. Uh, and if you think about rules, you know, kids jumping on the couch, and it's against the jumping on the couch, you, you know, there's a rule against jumping on the couch. If you, if you're, for parents out there, or grandparents, or people who have siblings, if you do not enforce the rule a single time, that kid knows you can jump on the couch, right? Then you're fighting with that kid every single time because you get one chance to blow it. Um, and if we don't enforce parts of the Constitution, we can get out our Sharpies and cross them out. And so if, if, you're, if people are okay with that, with you know, your worst case scenario president winning the next election or the next election, enhancing the power, minimizing the checks, 
then okay, then maybe we can tolerate this moment. But, but my children can't vote in this process. My children don't have a voice, and I'm really committed to maintaining the structure and the office of an accountability government. That's my, that's my deepest concern right now. John, the last word is to you. And in your uh, powerful essay, Impeaching Donald Trump, a game of political high-stakes poker, you quoted, I'm so glad you did, uh, Federalist 65, Hamilton's uh, definitive statement on impeachment. And I'll read it. Uh, and uh, Hamilton said that impeachment should be reserved for those offenses which proceed from the misconduct of public men, or in other words, from the abuse or violation of some public trust. They are of a nature which may be with peculiar propriety be denominated political as they relate chiefly to injuries done immediately to the society itself. I asked you already to make the defense on the facts. What is the defense on the law and what would you tell our friends about why you believe that the offenses that President Trump is accused of committing are not political and in that sense they are not injuries done immediately to the society. It's a little itself. tough to do that without talking somewhat about the facts because a lot of factual representations were just made by both Michael and, uh, and Kim. First of all, uh, Kim has twice referred to the Mueller report. Volume one of the Mueller report makes it quite clear that he came to the conclusion that there was no collusion between the Russian government and anybody connected with the Trump campaign. That was his conclusion. You can look at volume one yourself. Uh, if you want to. The other thing is the president didn't violate uh, the Impoundment uh, Act. If it, the fiscal year had ended, maybe he would have, but he did not violate the law uh, by delaying aid to the Ukrainians. And there is a long history of presidents uh, withholding aid uh, and using it as a leverage point. Barack Obama uh, withheld for a period of time hundreds of millions of dollars to the Egyptians uh, until they cooperated more with their counterterrorism efforts. He did the same thing with African countries uh, that did not adopt more uh, pro-gay rights policies that he liked. And if you want to look at the quintessential example of somebody threatening to withhold aid and interfering directly in the inner workings of another country, you need to look no further than Joe Biden, who told Petra Poroshenko that he was going to withhold a billion dollars in previously approved military aid unless and until they fired their prosecutor general, who is the equivalent of their attorney general of the United States. Um, you know, with respect to uh, you know, asking uh, other countries to cooperate in investigations, Barack Obama did precisely that when he initiated uh, what ultimately became the Mueller probe by requesting assistance from other countries. And in fact, in May of 2018, three Democratic senators, Menendez, um, uh, who was it? it was Menendez, Leahy, and Durbin uh, wrote to the prosecutor general in Ukraine and said, we may withhold funds from you in the future unless you continue cooperating with the Mueller probe. And the last thing I would add, I don't know Marie Ivanovich, the Ukrainian uh, uh, former Ukrainian ambassador, our, our ambassador to the Ukraine. She may be the greatest person in the world. She may be a genuine patriot. But there were uh, allegations, and she even sort of said that she had made some statements to the prosecutor general in Ukraine that she suggested that they not pursue certain investigations. He has said further. He has said, she gave me a do not prosecute list. And you also need to look no further than the transcript uh, of that July 25th call in which President Zelensky said, I am glad you got rid of Ambassador uh, Yovanovitch. She clearly supported my opponent, Petra Poroshenko. She would not have been able to work with me. So, you know, there were lots of facts running around that could give a president pause and would explain why he did what he did. 
for illuminating our understanding. No, well, you can hiss according to the First Amendment, but I know that all of you more enthusiastically will want to applaud our scholars for illuminating the facts and law of the Constitution and impeachment. This episode was edited by Kevin Kilborn and produced by me, Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to Live in America's Town Hall. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.